The bipartisan infrastructure bill that's expected to be considered by the House soon could set up a huge challenge for the Internal Revenue Service. The bill would end the Employee Retention Credit Program, one of several credits Congress created earlier in the pandemic to help small businesses. It is a complicated undertaking, and since the change would take effect on September 30th, the IRS would have almost no time to prepare. Chad Cooper is executive director of the Professional Managers Association. He joins us now to talk about what his members think is an impending emergency for the agency. And and Chad, I I think we'd like to start with, are are there particular challenges related to the Employee Retention Credit Program that that makes it especially problematic to handle mid-year? Or is it more the cumulative effect of everything the IRS has had to deal with related to the pandemic? Um, Thank you so much, Jared. I think that the challenge that the IRS faces whenever there's a mid-year tax law change um, usually plays out in the same way. This has happened a handful of times in the past. I think, you know, we can think famously to last year when the IRS began issuing stimulus payments. Um, You know, that was itself a a mid-year tax change, and it takes the IRS some time to pull people off of work. You know, they have to reprogram their systems, they have to develop new guidance for taxpayers, they have to develop and implement training for the workforce. In this particular change, this will require modifying taxpayer forms and instructions, um, and then doing quite a bit of outreach and education. What's unfortunate about the timing of this particular change, uh, you know, terminating the ERC as proposed, you know, beginning on October 1st, is that, you know, the House isn't really scheduled to come back until the 20th of September. And even if they took this bill up right away and it became law within a few days, that only gives small businesses about a week um, before they would need to change decisions that they've made around staffing. And so when there, when, when there is a tight turnaround, the other spillover is that um, business owners, tax preparers, and payroll service providers need to get in touch with the IRS. And I think that it's pretty well documented in the press that the IRS's level of service for customer service isn't exactly where we would want it to be right now. And so giving the public another reason, um, you know, to drive an additional, you know, 10 or 15 million calls at this time of the year really is very unhelpful. We're also in a pickle on our budget, right? The government's fiscal year ends at the end of September. So there will be questions about what funding there is for staffing, um, what funding there is for resources as the Congress, you know, waits to the 11th hour to decide whether or how it will appropriate funds for the IRS's fiscal 22. Right. And when it comes to a change like this, how, how much of it is a technology problem and how much of it is a customer service problem like you were just alluding to? I, you know, I would love to be able to say that it's 50-50, but the IRS's aging technology is challenging. The computer system that underlies the business database will turn 60 years old next year, and there are only a handful of people who are skilled um, or still have the skills to program in that computer language. When the programming takes place, then significant testing has to be done. Unfortunately, also, you know, about 60 or so IRS created programs feed into or overlay that database. All of those are aging as well. Um, The IRS is actually also struggling with, you know, modernizing um, a lot of those systems to be compatible with modern web browsers, which is the thing I can't believe that I'm saying about our government. 
um, but is the truth. And so a lot of the work will be IT related and won't just be that usual story about the IRS's aging database. This affects dozens of systems um, within the IRS. And as far as customer service is concerned, will be a major source of confusion. This is a tax credit, you know, that is meant to help businesses keep people employed during the pandemic and has been the law of the land since March of 2020. So these are dollars that businesses have come to count on to some extent. And we are concerned about how we will educate the taxpayer base, how they will react and what that means for taxpayers, citizens, and and our country's stability. Um, Although PMA isn't a small business advocacy group, right? You know, our members, IRS leaders, want to be able to provide the best service that we can. And and these sorts of changes keep us from being able to do that. You know, I I guess fundamentally, there are lots of reasons why, in a perfect world, you wouldn't want to be making mid-year tax changes for broader economic reasons, not just because of management difficulty reasons. But there's going to be times forever, probably, where, where it's just going to be necessary for one emergency reason or, or, or another. Fundamentally, what needs to happen to get IRS into a place where it can be nimble enough to handle something like this? Well, we were hoping to get there. Um, you know, in the original text of this bill, until only a few days before the Senate vote, um, the IRS was, um, you know, appropriated about $40 billion over a decade in order to undertake major modernization projects. It's an investment every IRS commissioner has been insisting we make since the 90s. And that specific amount of money was requested specifically by our commissioner in testimony um, even earlier this year. And so, you know, when the Congress made the decision to remove that funding from the bill, then they had to find ways to pay for it. And those pay-fors, you know, have, you know, sort of amount to gimmicks. Um, the, the, like the termination of this credit is one, right? The ERC is funded really out of national debt, right? It's a, it's, it's a historic pandemic. They were, you know, the Congress is trying to stabilize the economy. Um, so by taking the dollars away from the employer retention credit to give to infrastructure is sort of just reassigning what part of the national debt will be spent in which way. Um, The $40 billion IRS investment was going to generate real actual new revenue to the government, which would cause it to not borrow to the extent it will now. In fact, I believe the entire bill is paid by borrowing now. So kind of to summarize everything you just said, what this might end up creating is a real short-term problem for IRS, while the same bill actually helps matters in the long run. Is that about fair? I would say I would say yes. You know, there are about 10 provisions of the bill that add burden to the IRS. The employer retention credit for us is a big emergency because it has such a narrow window of time to implement, execute, um, and, you know, have in place. Um, the other areas of the bill that cause significant burden on the IRS, you know, such as Senator Portman's, you know, inserting the language to create a brand new reporting framework and mechanism for digital assets or cryptocurrency is quite an expansive assignment for the IRS to receive with zero dollars of funding to even implement it. So the IRS will then, you know, be face cutting from other areas of its operating budget in order to make that happen over the next year and a half. Um, There's also no guarantee what kind of money that will bring in. It has to do with the behavior of people selling digital currency is when that becomes a taxable event. So 
you know, I do think that the ERC is a short-term problem, that the IRS is always will find a way. Um, the infrastructure bill does contain a, a, a lot of other provisions that the IRS's aging infrastructure will struggle to implement. They will find a way to do that. But I don't believe that we should be, you know, trying to get our duct tape and MacGyvering together America's tax system. Um, we could make a small investment, not pay for this out of national debt and have a world-class tax apparatus that can give the American public the service it deserves. Isn't that part of the problem, though, is that Congress has, has seen you guys duct tape over the problem so many times in the past and the system really hasn't completely crashed and burned? I, I would think that would tend to lead to an attitude of, hasn't been a problem yet, let's let's try this again. I, you know, I, I sometimes ask myself the same question. Is the IRS's ability to see itself through these sorts of crises what's perpetuated um, this, you know, the age of this database and the lack of this investment. Um, I do believe, you know, there was a time when the IRS was at the forefront of technology. We began computing in the 50s and we implemented these systems, you know, seven or eight years before we went to the moon. Um, the IRS was always at the forefront of technology. It wasn't until the mid 80s when the Reagan administration brought along with them an antipathy toward the civil service and government bureaucracy that we started to see the Congress sort of scale back its investment in the IRS. And then, you know, we have spent the 90s sort of walking through ways in which IRS enforcement was abusive or unfair to certain kinds of taxpayers. And the Congress addressed that through a restructuring act um, that the IRS has never been able to fully implement because as soon as that was passed in 1998, the Congress stopped making historic investments in the service. And so now what we have, although for me, 1998 doesn't feel like it was as many years ago as it is, but, you know, we have more than a generation now of taxpayers who've grown up with a flagging sort of tax system. And we can't have this go on for generations. Uh, you know, eventually the big break will happen. We saw a, a sneak peek of what the future will bring a few years ago. I think it was in 2018, the IRS's main computing database had a faulty sensor and believed it was overheating. Um, and so on the filing deadline, the entire system went down. Um, and it took the IRS a day or a day and a half or so to get that back up and running. And the Commissioner of Internal Revenue had to grant a one-time extension for taxpayers who were unable to file electronically that day. That's scary. You know, that has never happened in the history of the Internal Revenue Service, um, that the tax filing season needed to be extended because of an IT failure. For us, we think that that will be more of the same. There's also an issue we face in recruiting world-class talent to the IRS because you can see when you walk through an office, the government investment and, and what kind of tools you're using, um, you know, and to take someone off the street and sit them in front of a computer that's, you know, several generations older using a browser that only 1% of America is using. Um, the difficulties of just getting your work done during the day make the IRS very inefficient and it can be better. Uh, an investment that we think is important, but each day that the Congress ignores the issue, it becomes a more expensive problem. So at this time, the IRS spends roughly a quarter of its operating budget simply maintaining all of these legacy systems. And as a taxpayer, I don't want us spending money that way. Chad Hooper is executive director of the Professional Managers Association. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used 
that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, 
as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.